You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. What I have for you coming up next is one of those true crime stories that make you wonder, you know, just what were they thinking? Anyway, this episode was released on September 2nd of 2009, which would have been at the very tail end of my summer break from teaching. And what I recall about writing this is I was at a table on my back porch using the Google newspaper archive to do all the research. But the problem was I didn't have an easy way to print the articles out of the time, so that really slowed things down. Now this is the second of three true crime stories that I recorded in a row, but I remember making a conscious decision after this to move away from that category. And while I still record one or two of them here or there, That has never been the main focus of this podcast. Anyway, let's take a listen. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is one that I'm calling Escape in a Homemade Submarine. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. Now, for today's question of the day, I thought I would give you a multiple choice question based on movie history. In 1912, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the novel The Lost World, and it was first made into a movie. In fact, it was made into a movie many times, but it was first made into a movie in 1925. Now, this movie has the honor of being the first something, and here are your choices. Was it, one, the first to feature robotic dinosaurs? Was it, two, was it the first movie to have music recorded directly on the celluloid film itself? Or three, was it the first movie filmed in 3D? Or four, was it the first movie ever to be shown on an airplane? Again, the 1912 novel The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was first made into a movie in 1925. This movie was the first one to what? One, feature robotic dinosaurs. Two, have music recorded directly on celluloid film itself. Three, the first movie to be filmed in 3D. Or four, is it the first movie ever to be shown on an airplane? And I'll keep you in suspense until the end of this podcast, and then I'll tell you the answer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for today's story, which I'm calling Escape in a Homemade Submarine. Now, if you're going to set off a bomb, how would you plan your escape? Would it be by car, boat? Maybe you're a skilled pilot and you do it by plane. Well, this is the crazy story of three guys that plan to do so in a homemade submarine. Yes, you heard me correct, and it really is a true story. And the story begins with an extortion note. You know, it's one of those pay-up or pay-the-price type notes. And the note was placed near the front porch of a home at 2612 East Sherwood Boulevard in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on July 22, 1940. Now, you may not want to go there, but you can actually go to Google Maps and do a street view. And you'll see it's a nice, beautiful brick home on a very, very nice street. Now, the note was intended to be delivered to Roland H. Davey, who was the manager of the Sears Roebuck stores in the Milwaukee area in the 1940s. But there was one problem. He no longer lived there. He had moved on. Instead, Circuit Judge William Shaughnessy was living there now. Yeah, you heard it right. A big wig judge. And immediately the police were called in on the case. I won't read the whole note, but here are a few of the highlights. Quote, At 8.30, a bomb will go off at Sears Northside store that is to let you know that we demand $100,000 or a bomb 200 times larger will go off at your South and Northside store. End of quote. Now, jumping ahead a bit, it instructed David to take an ad out in the newspaper that said, quote, Joe will be at home, RHD, end quote. RHD, of course, being Roland Davies' uh, initials. This was a signal to the extortionists, of course, that they were willing to play ball, that they were going to pay the money. The note then instructed him to rent a plane on Friday the 26th and fly straight in a direction that they would tell later on. Then there would be two bright white lights shining into the sky that would act as a signal to tell them where to drop the money, and the plane was to continue flying on until it was out of sight. This note, as well as three subsequent notes, were simply signed, We, not the extortionists or anything fancy, just We. And, as promised, a small bomb went off the next night at the Sears store in the northern part of the city. And it was basically, you know, a six-inch long pipe bomb that was, you know, that was triggered by, you know, one of those tick-tock alarm clocks. And it was placed on the third floor in a storeroom at the Sears store. And the police think it was done by somebody who must have known the inner workings of the store. Because most people who are just customers don't know what, you know, they have no clue what goes on behind those walls. Anyway, the damage was minimal and no one was hurt. But just to be safe, they doubled security at their stores, uh, and Mr. Davy was given a bodyguard just, you know, just to be safe. Now, the police initially remained hush on the case in the hopes that the criminals would contact Manager Davy again, and so they did. At 9:12 Friday night, he received a short phone call, and this is in quotes: "Tell Mr. Davy that Joe cannot make it tonight. Will tomorrow night at the same time." End of quote. And the caller abruptly hung up. 
It really wasn't very long before the police solved this case. On August 3rd, less than two weeks after the first extortion note, the police announced the arrest of three Milwaukee men. They were 23-year-old Walter Minx, who was an ornamental iron worker, his 27-year-old brother Kurt, and Kurt's 28-year-old brother-in-law Daniel Carter. So how did police solve this case so quickly? Well, it seems that there was a small piece of ornamental wire used to make the trigger for the bomb. And then they started questioning some of the employees at the Sears store, thinking that one of them was involved in the bombing. And one of them recalled that several cashier cages at the store had been built by one Walter Minx. Bingo! Anyway, Walter Minx admitted to the whole thing, sending the extortion note, planting the bomb, and making the phone call. But then police found the real shocker in his basement. He had built a seven-foot submarine to escape under the the surface of Lake Michigan with the money. Now, I don't know a lot about submarines, but I'm smart enough to know that no matter how handy I may be, I should probably never dive under the surface in a submarine of my own creation. The submarine was fairly light. Supposedly two people could lift it onto a trailer so they could move it around. The power was supplied by two batteries that ran an automobile starter motor. Believe it or not, they actually dragged this thing into court for the trial, and it was fairly complete. It had a conning tower, an oxygen tank, tin can uh, ballast tanks, and hand-operated diving fins. Now, if you're really curious, there is a grainy picture of it in the August 24th, 1940 issue of the Milwaukee Journal. If you just go to the Google News archives, you can pull that up and uh, see it. It's not a great picture, but it'll give you an idea of what it looked like. The plan was to have the money dropped out of an airplane at about 10 miles out over Lake Michigan, retrieve it, and then submerge in the submarine. Walter, who had built the sub, would be the only one on board. And once he got the money, he was going to head westward to a governmental uh, pier. As he approached shore, uh, the money would be sealed into an inner tube to protect it. The sub would be sunk, and then Walter would swim with the inner tube and the money to the shoreline, and hopefully to freedom and be able to keep the $100,000. And just in case things didn't work out as planned, he equipped the sub with enough oxygen to keep him submerged for several days. There was just one problem with this whole scheme, and that is that submarines need to be able to go under the water to be effective. And initial test runs in gentle waters worked almost flawlessly. But when these bumbling criminals tried out their steel creation on the Saturday previous to their arrest, the more turbulent waters of the lake caused it to float. It would not go down under the water. So there's no wonder why they didn't call Mr. Davy back. You remember they said on Friday they would call him back on Saturday? They never did, and that's because they couldn't get their submarine to sink. Like all good criminals, of course, they hatched a new plan. They were going to have Mr. Davy hire a motorcycle courier to get the bag of money, and then he would receive further instructions on where to leave it. The investigators were able to find two young boys that were hired as go-betweens. Both of them positively identified Walter Minks in a police lineup of seven men. One of the boys was paid a whole quarter to make the phone call to Mr. Davey to let him know that Joe couldn't make it that night. Well, it turns out the real reason for the delay wasn't the fact that the sub didn't work or anything like that. It turns out it was raining, and they decided to postpone it to the next day. Of course, it was on that very next day that they found out that the sub wouldn't submerge, and they had to abandon that plan totally. 
I am sure that you're shocked to learn that the Minx brothers were charged with extortion and the bombing of the Sears store. They each faced a maximum of 20 years behind bars. Bail was set at $25,000 each for the brothers. Daniel Carter, on the other hand, was charged with conspiracy and for being an accessory to the crimes. His bail was initially set at $5,000, but was later reduced to $1,500. Now, it didn't make a difference how much the bail was because none of them could make bail, and they all sat in jail until their trials. Unlike the slow movement of justice today, the two brothers were sentenced on August 26, 1940. That's just 20 days after their arrest. Today, it might take a year or two. Walter Minx, the one who built the sub and planted the bomb, received a sentence of 1 to 14 years. I can't help but wonder what do we get today. His brother Kurt received a similar sentence of 1 to 12 years. Both Minx brothers testified at Daniel Carter's trial that he had nothing to do with the crime, and charges were dismissed against Carter on September 20, 1940. He was a free man. Walter Minx, the brains behind the entire scheme, was released from prison in 1946, that's six years later, and eventually became a master plumber. And I read that he recently died on June 30, 2009. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, a few words from our retro sponsor. Another public service announcement from Brill Cream. Men, beware. Use one dab of Brill Cream. Just a little dab makes your hair look excitingly clean, disturbingly healthy. This man dared to use two dabs. Now he's in trouble. We refuse to be responsible. Brill Cream, Brill Cream, Brill Cream. I was surprised to find out that they still make Brill Cream. If you're curious, it was first produced back in 1928 in Birmingham, England to give hair a glossy look. And it's responsible for those slicked back hairstyles that the male celebrities of yesteryear fashioned. And it was incredibly popular until the 1960s when sales suddenly died off because men opted for the more dry look that people have today. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call news of the weird past. And our first story goes back to April 18, 1901, where Henry Matuszek of Hackensack, New Jersey, reported the strange death of his pet parrot. It seems that the parrot was fine. Everything was well with it. It was a good talker. It was good. It was, you know, Everything was great in its life until the family got a new dog two weeks earlier. All of a sudden, the parrot became very, very jealous and started attacking the dog, upon which the family sentenced it to prison time in its cage. Basically, they locked it back in its cage where it stopped talking. So the family let the bird roam the house one day while they were gone, and when they returned, they found that the house was filled with gas and the bird was dead next to a chewed gas hose. The family claims 
that the bird committed suicide. Although I can tell you, having owned a parrot, that they will chew through just about anything that they can get their beaks on. Our next story goes back to January 24, 1905, where it's reported that 10 Hungarian men died from seasickness. Now, I never even thought this was possible. And another 40 were so sick that they were sent to the onboard hospital of the Red Star liner, the Vaderland, which was traveling from Antwerp, Belgium, to Ellis Island, which is partly in New York City, partly in New Jersey. The ship overall carried 955 passengers. Eight of the ten bodies were actually buried at sea, and another two were brought ashore. The doctors determined that they really died from congestion of the lungs, but it was all brought on by the extremely rough trip across the ocean. They also attributed to the fact that these men were half-starved and poorly clothed when they had boarded the ship. Our last little story goes back to October 24, 1929, where it's reported that Joseph and Henry Morris were fishing between Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight in England and got more than their usual net full of fish. It seems that they pulled up a valuable movie camera that was later found to have been accidentally thrown overboard while filming a movie scene. It seems that the boat was suddenly jolted by a large wave and they lost this very valuable camera overboard. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I asked about the first film adaptation in 1925 of The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. What was so unique about this movie? Was it one, was it the first to feature robotic dinosaurs? Was it two, the first movie to have music recorded directly on the celluloid film itself? Was it three, the first movie to be filmed in 3D? Or four, was it the first movie ever to be shown on an airplane? Well, the answer is choice four. It's the first in-flight movie. Twelve people had the privilege of watching it on April 7, 1925, on a flight that flew in a very large circle for nearly an hour, starting in the London borough of Croydon. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story that I titled Escape in a Homemade Submarine, as well as our question of the day regarding the Lost World movie, listening to our retro sponsor, Brill Cream, and the news of the weird past tidbits, uh, my favorite about a parrot that committed suicide, death by seasickness, which I never thought was possible, and a very unusual catch of a motion picture camera. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator, which is available in English, Greek, Korean, Chinese, and I just sold the rights to Italian, so you can read it in multiple languages, and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman. They're available from your local bookseller online and, of course, from your local library. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or visit my website at uselessinformation.org. Lastly, I would appreciate it if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.